You're listening to West Virginia Week, a regular podcast from West Virginia Public Broadcasting that looks back at the major stories of the week. I'm your host this week, Liz McCormick. With a possible government shutdown looming, we learned this week how it might affect West Virginians. We also learned about plants that can thrive in former mine lands. We kayaked along the Gauley River. We learned about an art exhibit inspired by recent cuts at West Virginia University. And we saw dogs fly from Charleston to Michigan to reach their forever homes. We also remembered longtime legislator Chuck Romine, who passed away this week at age 87. Let's jump right in with a few short news stories. A federal government shutdown could occur next week and would have an impact on West Virginia's dams. Brianna Heaney has the story. The U.S. Army Corps of Engineers is responsible for running the operations at nine of West Virginia's dams. They are a federally run and funded organization and would be part of the federal government shutdown that is expected to begin September 30th. Public Affairs Officer at the Corps, Brian Macca, says the dam will maintain a small staff to ensure the safety of the dam. However, he says there will be some things that they won't be able to do. Over time, uh, means that other things are not being done uh, if you're just focused on the operations. But that's all it will be able to be manned to do. You know, routine type of things that other staff members would do would not be done. Recreational releases will continue at the Summersville Dam for the Golly Whitewater schedule. The Corps says it's still working out the details of what the shutdown could look like for them. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Brianna Heaney in Charleston. Hundreds of families in West Virginia could lose the support of Head Start if the government shuts down. Emily Rice has more. Federally funded programs are bracing for a potential government shutdown if Congress cannot reach a budget solution this week. One of those programs is West Virginia Head Start, a child development program for children of income-eligible families to connect them with services that support health and success in school. Lori Milam is the executive director of West Virginia Head Start. She said approximately 722 children and families would lose access to resources if the shutdown lasts a long time. If it's a short shutdown, I think our programs are equipped to handle that and have plans in place for that should it happen. However, if it's any amount of a long period, they would lose access very quickly. For Appalachia Health News, I'm Emily Rice in Charleston. Appalachia Health News is a project of West Virginia Public Broadcasting with support from Charleston Area Medical Center and Marshall Health. The looming federal government shutdown would have a major impact on some of West Virginia's most vulnerable when it comes to putting healthy food on the table. Randy Yowie has more. The state's two major food banks facing hunger in Huntington and the Mountaineer Food Bank in Gassaway help more than a quarter million people in need. Facing Hunger Food Bank CEO Cindy Kirkhart says a shutdown would immediately stop checks and meals going to tens of thousands in two programs, WIC, or Women's Infants and Children, and Meals on Wheels for Seniors. She says WIC families losing their about $200 a month checks will take away nutritional food resources. Milk, juice, cereal, those things that really, you know, families rely on to have healthy children suddenly become out of reach. She says both groups will turn to depleted food banks and struggling charitable institutions for help. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Randy Yowie in Charleston. And with the threat of a federal shutdown, the state's schools are keeping an eye on the situation. Chris Schultz has more. West Virginia schools rely on several federal grants, including child nutrition programs from the U.S. Department of Agriculture and special education funds from the U.S. Department of Education. 
Melanie Perkey is the federal programs officer for the West Virginia Department of Education. She says the programs work on a reimbursement process. Each year, fiscal year, we receive a grant award that is similar to a letter of credit from the federal government. And we have an allocation that says, you know, you have up to this much. Perkey says that means the state has the ability to cover expenses for a time. But if the shutdown stretches into November, there may begin to be cash flow issues. The 2018-2019 federal shutdown was the longest in U.S. history at 35 days. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Chris Schultz in Morgantown. You're listening to West Virginia Week, and now some of our top feature stories from the past week. A WVU researcher is studying a plant that can help restore surface mine properties by creating missing topsoil and capturing carbon out of the air and storing it underground. The above-ground plants can also be used as biomass, which can be turned into biofuels or even particle board. News Director Eric Douglas spoke with Jennifer Kane, a postdoctoral student in plant and social sciences from the WVU Davis College of Agriculture, Natural Resources, and Design. She is studying the plant Miscanthus. Kane grew up in Raleigh County and has firsthand knowledge of the abandoned mine lands she is looking to improve. What intrigues me about this, what interests me about this, mm-hmm. is we've seen stories, we've seen People getting grants. We've seen efforts to plant on uh, former or reclaimed coal uh, coal mine lands, or even a, a abandoned mine lands, mm-hmm. to, to restore them and to with real mixed success. Uh, it's just not got the nutrients in it, so nothing's growing real well. Yeah. So this kind of intrigues me as something that is actually growing and can actually serve a purpose on coal mine lands or reclaim coal. Yeah. You know, we would ride four wheelers on old mines that were pre-SMACRA. So they weren't reclaimed at all. Um, and some hazardous conditions and obviously things weren't growing well. We do, we've we been testing it on varying because, you know, m- mine disturbance is a spectrum anywhere from it's really bad. It was mined pre-SMACRA. SMACRA is... is <clears throat> uh, Surface Mining Reclamation and Control Act that's, of that's 1977. Seven. Yep. I said, okay, so that's the post-77, the, the, the mine industry had to put money into a fund to help reclaim. Yes. It's not mm-hmm. near enough, but that's a different... Sure. <laughs> yeah, some level of accountability with some basic reclamation requirements. But, but, but um, post-77, yeah, those mines were just, they just walked away yeah. from uh, exactly. All, not in all. So things. we have one site like that um, that was a pre-77 surface mine. Um, and so it was just left as bare rock, unreclaimed. We say it's basically unreclaimed. And so the interesting thing, like we do see lower yields of miscanthus on those lands, but it's still certainly um, alive and well. Uh, and Two purposes of miscanthus in our minds are maybe one day we could use it for energy or materials, but it also literally builds soil under it. Um, And so that's a really great thing about it is even on these really disturbed sites where the yields are pretty low and it may not be viable for um, really high industrial use, it's making the soil better under it. Describe for me what grows above land. I'm intrigued Mm -hmm. by, by... This is such an interesting plant that, yeah, you're, it's it's doing all these great things for the soil, mm-hmm. but you're also talking about harvesting it and using it for biofuels. 
we in the U.S. are not on the forefront, I wouldn't say, of the bioenergy technology, but some places in Europe are using miscanthus. Um, you can use it for, it's called the kind of more traditional bioenergy cellulosic, uh, you know, ethanol production. But that may not necessarily be the best use of it. I mean, people, you know, like people have pellet stoves and things like that. It can be pelletized and burned, um, similar to how wood is used for heat and energy. Um, also, there's an interesting company again in Europe somewhere, I believe, and they're they're actually making building material like particle board. It's not a good forage grass, unfortunately. Is this like three, four feet tall? 15, 16 feet. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. This year, ours are... Um, pushing 15 feet. What is the time scale? How, how long does it take to get 15 foot tall plants? Oh gosh. So by year, year one and year two are where, you know, a little bit um, less yield, but in starting in year three, four, five, we were getting into the 10 feet, 12 feet, and we're seeing it a little taller each year. It'll eventually level off. I mean, it won't, it won't, you know, get so tall, but uh, it can only get so tall, but um, yeah, between, I would say between years three and five is the standard for when you can expect like the most biomass. So is there anything we haven't discussed? We've done several um, studies, you know, since 2019 on kind of the the whole system. My study specifically has to do with the roots and how roots interact with microbes, you know, at that very small scale. Because we have evidence that the miscanthus roots, like they may produce more roots or less roots or their tissue chemistry might change and that that can also impact the soil carbon cycle. How many plots are you working? We have um, in Morgantown, 64 plots uh, that are, they're divided up into, they're not as big as you might think. They're like five meters by five meters. And we also, another key piece of this um project is we're testing how different common agricultural practices like fertilization impact these dynamics. So, um, you know, if we, the plant is relying on the microbiome to get nutrients from the soil and the atmosphere in some cases. And um, if we add in fertilizer, does that disrupt that relationship, right? Because the plant doesn't need help anymore. That was Jennifer Kane, a postdoctoral student at WVU, speaking with Eric Douglas about her work with the plant Miscanthus and how it can be used to restore mine lands. Read a longer version of this interview on our website at wvpublic.org. A film called Impossible Town that's based in Minden, West Virginia, features Dr. Ayn Amjad's efforts to relocate the town's residents after decades of exposure to chemical contamination during her tenure as the state's health officer. Emily Rice spoke with the co-directors of the film ahead of free screenings across the mountain state. In the 1980s, the Environmental Protection Agency, or EPA, found that Schaefer equipment was responsible for contaminating Minden, West Virginia's soil with harmful chemicals called polychlorinated biphenyls, or PCBs. In 1984, the EPA declared a portion of land in Minden as a Superfund site meaning it had been contaminated by hazardous waste and a candidate for cleanup because it posed a health and environmental risk. The EPA did soil testing again in 2017 at the Schaefer site, as well as near homes in Minden. The results showed the community wasn't in need of immediate action and therefore not a candidate for the national priorities list. Minden was added to the national priorities list in 2019. 
Over the years, while all that testing, cleanup, and bureaucracy occurred, Dr. Ayn Amjad grew up in nearby Beckley, West Virginia, raised by a father who taught her to help others and demonstrated that sentiment by researching the influence of PCB exposure on the number of cancer deaths reported in Minden. When Dr. Hassan Amjad passed away on August 29th, 2017, his daughter, Dr. Ayn Abjad, took over the project of establishing a cancer registry to count the number of cases in Minden. For a decade, co-directors Meg Griffiths and Scott Ferris looked for a West Virginia story to tell while creating documentary content for nonprofits, foundations, and socially conscious brands. Scott grew up in West Virginia, where the majority of his family resides to this day and has always wanted to tell stories about his home state. And so we started putting out feelers, asking simply, who is doing interesting and inspiring things in the state? And very quickly connected with Jeremy Morris, who at the time was working with Wheelunk, which is a news publication in Wheeling. And Jeremy told us, you know, you should really reach out to my former high school classmate, Dr. Ayn Amjad. I think she's trying to move a town or something. And we thought, wow, what an incredible hook for a story. We have to find out more. Filmed over the course of four years, Impossible Town features moments that help viewers get to know Dr. Ayan Abjad and the Menden residents who inspired her work to help them relocate. There's so much history to take in surrounding the environmental contamination in Menden. When we embarked on this project initially, we thought we would make a short film about Dr. Amjad and her family's efforts to aid this small community. But what we discovered very quickly is that because the context is so complicated and the history so extensive, it really called for a much deeper dive than simply a five or 10 minute film. And that is what really led us to this feature-length project, Impossible Town. Griffiths said the film will leave viewers with a sense of urgency, not just about environmental protection, but also to support local leaders of small communities. I think in addition to, you know, folks feeling an increased sense of urgency, I think there's a call to action as well around um, figures like Dr. Amjad and the demands that we place around heroic figures like her that are in our communities. And I think there's a call to action for all of us as citizens to support those leaders and also question for ourselves how we can better help and aid those in communities like Minden that live closest to us. While the story of Minden, West Virginia, has been extensively covered in local and national media, Griffiths believes Impossible Town shines a new light on the story. What's happening in Minden has been covered a lot at the state level, at the national level, but we really think the angle that we brought to the story is really different than previous coverage um, that has explored some of these issues. And I think that viewers that are familiar with the story in Minden and that are familiar with Dr. Amjad will be shocked, they'll be heartbroken, um, and it will, like, it will challenge people's thinking. Ferris said the film shows the best and worst of West Virginia. And when I say worst, I mean specifically the damaging history of exploitative industry and environmental contamination. And when I say best, I mean specifically the goodness of the people in West Virginia 
their willingness to help their neighbor and go out of their way to sacrifice for somebody that maybe they barely know and have very little in common with. The premiere of Impossible Town will take place in seven cities, and some showings are free to the public. Visit wvpublic.org for more information about Impossible Town showings across Appalachia. For Appalachia Health News, I'm Emily Rice in Charleston. The fall whitewater rafting and kayaking season is in full swing on the Gauley River. Brianna Heaney has the story. As summer winds down, tens of thousands of whitewater rafters and kayakers from all over the country begin their migration to West Virginia. They are here for the Gauley River, which normally only has navigable flows during the fall. Those flows are part of a planned effort of dam releases in the fall to draw down Summersville Lake and support whitewater rafting and kayaking. Companies offer guided trips down the river for customers without expert whitewater skills. But most of the boats on the river are private boaters or individuals who own their own equipment and have the professional knowledge and abilities to navigate the river. The National Park Service says this year they have seen more private boaters than ever. Matt McQueen is a park ranger and kayaker. The Gali runs two to four days a week during its six-week season, and on those days, he is on the river with other rangers. He says during Gali season, the brown, green, and orange hues of the landscape are interrupted with the bright colors of the boats and rafters headed downstream from where the river begins at Summersville Dam. A lot of different colors, a lot of plastic on the water, uh, a lot of smiling faces, a lot of glitter, a lot of lipstick. There's definitely a whole culture involved in the whitewater industry that is kind of unique for sure. And those colorful, glittery private boaters gather on this river from all over the country. I had never spoken about West Virginia in my life until the golly was brought up. That's Melissa Clivia Wintrup. She started guiding this summer in her home state of Montana. A lot of our senior guides had spoken a big a big game about the Gauley. I had heard this name kind of floating around the parking lot since I had gotten there. Kevin Fitch agrees. He has been guiding for nine years in Colorado and has come to West Virginia for the past few falls to work and play on the river. People travel to West Virginia from Alaska, California, Oregon, Washington. So it ends up being a, a kind of a reunion for a lot of folks, even if they haven't been to the Gali in seasons past. The rafters say they come out here because of how massive the whitewater is. The Whitewater Guidebook says the Gali is the best river for a single day trip. And the Gali usually finds itself in the top five of any other national or international best whitewater list. That's because it has many of the qualities that create big whitewater. A steep descent, lots of water, and lots of obstacles. During the release, it runs at a minimum of 2,800 CFS, or cubic feet per second, which is about the size of a basketball. and if there was a line going across the river every second, 2,800 basketballs worth of water cross that line. Because of the style of the golly, 2,800 ends up being a, a large amount of water for relatively a small river. And Fitch says the combination of those features make the waves reminiscent of a big swell on the ocean. You're looking 10 feet above you at the crest of the wave and your only perspective, your only visual at that point is the water around you and the trees that can poke out above them. Those waves, rocks and water all factor into a white water classification system that rates rapids on a level of difficulty between one and six. 
Park Ranger McQueen says that you can think of Class 1 as a choppy day on a lake, and Class 6 as a nearly impossible run. Class 5 is more of an expert level where significant hazards are present. The route's not always easily apparent. There is some solid navigational <laughs> skills that need to be required to get through. Uh, strength for sure. The Golly has five Class 5 Rapids, Iron Curtain, Pillow, Lost Paddle, Iron Ring, and Sweets Falls, as well as many other smaller rapids. In those rapids, the chances of ending up in the water are higher, says McQueen. He lives by the water mantra that a boater is always just in between swims. No matter how good or skilled or experienced you are as a whitewater paddler, eventually something's going to happen that you're going to find yourself in the water taking a swim. That's why the Park Service is out there. And if you have made a small or big mistake, you might hear this. Cheers generally mean that uh, you have messed up your line. Cheers generally mean that somebody is going in the water. That's Fitch again. He says those cheers are part of the rowdy and colorful Golly River culture. But he says... What is absolutely epic about those times is everyone will cheer as things are going wrong, but if things end up going weird, um, the cheers immediately stop and the concern for the individual and getting them out of the scenario that they're in becomes paramount. Um, and that is one of the aspects of phenomenal community here. The Gali River usually gets 20 to 30,000 visitors each season. Although rangers are predicting that the number is this year, could be their highest yet. This year, the season started September 8th and will end on October 22nd. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Brianna Heaney on the Gali River. Earlier this month, West Virginia University affirmed its decision to cut 28 majors and more than 140 faculty positions. Now, more than 40 university faculty, students, and alumni from the ceramics, prints, and sculpture departments are coming together at a local art gallery to put on an exhibition of their work titled Deep Cuts. Chris Schultz sat down with WVU professor and owner of Morgantown Art Gallery, Galactic Panther, Eli Pollard, to discuss the exhibit and the impacts of the university's cuts. Can you tell me a little bit about your teaching at the university? I do teach at the university currently, but this looks like it will be my final semester. I started here in 2008 in the humanities department. I had about 300 students a year teaching Western Civ. Unfortunately, all the faculty from that department has been fired, um, let go, which was kind of mind-blowing considering the amount of students I had for about $23,000 a year. I was able to transition over to the design department, which has been great. I've taught fashion design for them, interior design, landscape architecture. I do a lot of drawing and foundations courses and portfolio courses for those departments. And I've been teaching and designing community development and also developing uh, study abroad courses. We've gone all over. I started in Central America, and then things got a little bit difficult working in Central America. I wasn't allowed to go there anymore, and so I started working more in Europe. But I just got word last night that I won't be able to run those anymore either, which is a huge loss, again, to the students. You know, What has been the impact on your role? Just this past few days, I've learned, first off, maybe four or five days ago, I was told, my position teaching is over. And I, I had always understood that there was a possibility to continue the education abroad courses. I will no longer be able to teach those as of, I guess, last night or the night before I was told that one. 
So they're both done. So my focus is here on the gallery now. I've been here for 15 years teaching now, so it's kind of a, you know, it'll take a moment to adjust, but I've had a lot of warning. Like I said, my first apartment was completely slashed. So I've been kind of grappling with this before all this kind of headline news hit. And it's just unfortunate now because I'm seeing so many people I know and respect uh, facing the same kind of future, basically. You know, obviously this has a much wider effect, which is why we're going to be talking about this event happening later this week. But before we get into that, can you tell me a little bit about the background of Galactic Panther? Yeah, I started Galactic Panther right before COVID hit. So we pretty much opened up here in Morgantown during COVID, which was tricky, of course. Um, It's already tricky to have an art gallery. Uh, to make it extra tricky, I'm on the outskirts of Morgantown, and to make it <laughs> that much more challenging, it was opening during COVID. It's worked to a certain extent. Um, the gallery is still here in Morgantown. Because of my efforts here, I had a partner who was interested in, in assisting with opening a, a second space in the D.C. area. We are focusing on art exhibits, of course, as a gallery, but we have events in there Um, So some healing events and music events and art events are kind of the real focus. So tell me a little bit more about um, this week's event. Uh, This Friday the 29th from 5.30 to 9.30 is uh, when we'll be having our event. And and what what is the event? Deep Cuts is an exhibition from the WVU Printmaking, Sculpture, and Ceramics departments. This includes faculty, student, and alumni. So it's a, a quite a large grouping of artists. We've got about 40 visual artists involved. And then I've also got music booked for the evening as well by alumni of these departments. So how did this all come together? This is something that I came up with that just felt like a need. It was a necessity that this happened, I felt. And I didn't see that anybody else was offering this. So um, I reached out to the art department. They were uh, very positive in the response and um, have had a strong hand in um, curating this exhibit. Um, they've reached out to uh, many students and alumni to expand our voice, so to speak. Um, so we're all coming together and I've got to s- start running now to make sure we're all ready for Friday. <laughs> What are you hearing from the people that are contributing to this show about the need to do this now? Because it seems kind of bittersweet to have simultaneously such a great plethora of, of local artists coming together, but also the reason behind it is is obviously um, a, a bit of a weight, to say the least. Yeah, yeah, it is bittersweet. I have heard a lot of frustration coming from the artists as they're bringing their work in. It's just a blow, not just to the students at the university um, and to the faculty, but to the community. I mean, as I mentioned, these artists are doing things like the Morgantown Studio Tour. If that faculty has to leave, then that is going to leave probably with them. One of these artists is designer state quarter. Um, one of these artists, you know, teaches at Bow Park for everybody's kids in the summertime. So there's there's huge impacts here um, culturally. These impacts culturally, of course, will have eventual economic impacts, which brings us full circle, which makes you wonder why these are even happening. If the folks making these cuts are doing this for economic reasons, they're mistaken. They're deeply mistaken because these are the people that build the economy of a community. They build the community and they build the economy. So if you're getting rid of the people that do this, you're shooting yourself in the foot ultimately. And that's part of the message that we're here to convey. Is there anything else 
that I haven't asked you about? Uh, this is a free event. Again, it's Friday from 5.30 to 9.30. Donations are greatly appreciated. Buying artwork is highly encouraged. We would accept payment plans because this is supporting artists. It also, from day one at Galactic Panther, we have given a portion of all sales to local food banks. Please come out. Please res be respectful of the neighborhood, but come out in numbers and, and be heard. I don't know that I'm the spokesperson for the full process of what's happening at WVU. I'm just a, a kind of a modest megaphone for the artists in the area and the community that's being affected at large. I think this is a great opportunity uh, this weekend to come together and discuss this. Uh, this is maybe beyond the 11th hour, but th there's a lot of intelligent people here, and if our voices can be heard, maybe we can come up with a positive solution here. That was Eli Pollard speaking with Chris Schultz about the art exhibition Deep Cuts, being put on by WVU faculty, students, and alumni. The exhibition will run through November in Pollard's gallery. For more information and a longer version of this interview, visit our website at wvpublic.org. The power of collaboration was evident at West Virginia International Jaeger Airport this week as three organizations joined forces for a doggone good cause. Caroline McGregor reports. More people are finding it harder to afford to keep their pets. Animal adoptions are reaching crisis levels across the country and state with millions of animals destined for euthanasia. Working with the Kanawha Charleston Humane Association, Swill Dog, a woman-owned distillery and cidery in Upper Tract in Pendleton County, enlisted the help of Pilots to the Rescue, a non-profit that transports animals from overcrowded shelters to regions with more room for adoption. Their mission? To fly 16 dogs to the Cascades Humane Society in Jackson, Michigan, where they will be available for immediate adoption. If you need to do this work quickly, using a plane is a great way to go. And whenever you have puppies, senior dogs, sick animals, uh, or they just can't endure the stress of a drive. Swill Dog CEO Brooke Glover says their inspiration for the rescue mission comes from a border collie mix named Lucy Pickles. So Lucy's had a really tough go of it, and she's really been a motivation for our business and our mission. And for us, it's really about drawing attention to these amazing organizations that are really trying to help animals. So the goal is really to uh, get these animals adopted, more so than just this um, flight that we're doing. We really want to draw attention to the organizations. Top dog pilot Michael Schneider started Pilots to the Rescue in 2015 after hearing about planes used to rescue animals. A self-confessed serial entrepreneur, he says it was the perfect way to combine his love of animals with flying. You know, when you're a pilot, after going on a couple tours with friends and some interesting restaurants, you want to do more with your pilot certificate that you worked so hard to, to get. The 16 dogs are carefully loaded into the snug compartment of Poor Force One, a small Piper 6XT airplane for the three-hour flight to Michigan. A few feet away sits CRW's canine bird chaser, Hercules, and Swill Dog's Lucy Pickles, who offer their support from the tarmac. It's a tight fit, but Snossage, a short-legged Basset Beagle mix rescued from recent floodwaters in Kanawha County, squeezed in. Pilots to the Rescue is 100% donation-driven. This year alone, they've saved nearly 1,000 dogs from being euthanized. Schneider hopes that one day they will be able to buy a larger airplane for rescue missions like this. I mean, we are raising money to buy a bigger plane, but you'll be amazed how much we can fit in there, mainly because the crates are they're smaller. But for a short period of time, uh, they may be a little uncomfortable, but we are saving their lives today. That's the most important part.
Shelters in West Virginia are faced with an increasing challenge of fewer dog adoptions. The higher cost of pet food and vet care at a time inflation is hitting the country are thought to be contributing factors. Sarah Tully, Director of Community Engagement for the Kanawha Charleston Humane Association, says Michigan offers one of the highest rates of adoption. So all credit goes to Swill Dog Distillery. They reached out to us at Kanawha Charleston Humane Association and they said, we have this crazy idea. We want to sponsor a flight if you have dogs that you want to send. And we've never done anything like this before. We've received animals from other rescues, but we've never sent ours, especially not on the flight. So this was totally new to us and pilots to the rescue, Swill Dog Distillery. Everybody has been so helpful, so supportive and helping these dogs. So it's been an incredible journey. It's been a lot of work from all of us, but it's been so cool to see this come through and figuring out all the logistics to make this happen for, for these animals. It's been so cool. Tolly says no kill shelters like theirs are committed to saving the lives of as many animals as possible through adoption, neutering and spaying. But when space is limited, rescue missions like this are invaluable. Everybody has been so helpful, so supportive and helping these dogs. So it's been an incredible journey. It's been a lot of work from all of us, but it's been so cool to see this come through and figuring out all the logistics to make this happen for these animals. It's been so cool. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Caroline McGregor in Charleston. Flags at the Capitol and in Cabell County were at half-staff Thursday, honoring the life of longtime legislator Chuck Romine, who passed away this week at age 87. As Randy Yowie tells us, Romine's life combined politics and music, tied together with a passion for service. Well, hello, Central. Give me Dr. Jazz. That's Romine on the banjo and vocals. Former Cabell County Delegate Chad Lovejoy says his mentor in politics and life would sometimes turn the House chamber into a concert hall. He played on the floor. He and Shirley Love, who's, who's passed, um, did, a, did a song together on the floor, and, and um, he would bring that banjo out to different you know, events. Romine was first elected to the House of Delegates in 1968, then re-elected twice over the next 50 years. Lovejoy says the Cabell County Republican didn't yearn for sound bites or the cause of the day, but conducted himself as politics used to be. He, he always fought for home, you know, I mean, it wasn't about Democrat-Republican, it was like, this is good for Huntington, this would be good for, for Cabell. Romine spent 20 years playing with the eclectic string band, the 1937 Flood. Flood band leader Charlie Bowen says Romine carried the best of music and politics wherever he went. Born born politician in every good sense of that word. He, he, he loved people. Uh, he uh, uh, just naturally gravitated to people he didn't know so he could get to know them. Romine's wife of 66 years, Phyllis, passed away less than three weeks ago. Lovejoy says the devoted couple seemed meant to stay together. He went to be with her, which is 110% the way I, he, he would want it to be. As a citizen, a friend, husband, father, he was a consummate gentleman. And a heck of a banjo player. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Randy Yowie in Charleston. That's it for West Virginia Week. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you back here next week. As always, you can see these stories and more at wvpublic.org. I'm Liz McCormick. <laughs>